You are listening to Mountain Bike Radio. Welcome to the Ride Fat Bike Show on Mountain Bike Radio. I'm your host, Ben Welnack, and today's show, I'm going to give you a special announcement, and then we'll get into the heart of the show. This is the first for Mountain Bike Radio. We have the exclusive, I guess, release date of the 2015, well, it's 14-15 winter of Tuscobia Winter Ultra. So this year's Tuscobia Winter Ultra uh, will be held January 1st through the 3rd, 2015. Um, as you may know or may not know, if you don't know, you can go to Tuscobia, which is T-U-S-C-O-B-I-A dot WordPress dot com, and, or, or just scroll down a little bit, go to the show notes. But it's a, a winter ultra that takes place in Park Falls, Wisconsin, which is northern Wisconsin, it's uh, 35, 75, and 150 miles for um, running, skiing, and fat biking. Usually it's a little bit before Christmas, but again, this year just works out. It's January 1st through the 3rd, 2015. And what, what I'm going to do is I talked to the race directors, Helen and Chris, a little bit earlier in the year. Um, and kind of held off to uh, post that until we had some information on what was going on. thought it would be a good idea to kind of mix it all together, so I wanted to release this info. Again, it, the race is being held January 1st through the 3rd, 2015. All the extra info, um, you know, registration, accommodations, last year's results, race info, all that stuff, go to tuscobia.wordpress.com or just search them on Facebook, too, um, they have some information going there, but that'll give you the most up-to-date info. But you heard it here first, people. Get training. It's only uh, oh, about seven and a half months away. So if you're going to be doing a, a 150 miles on uh, running, skiing, or biking, you better get moving now. All right. So further in this episode, like I said, I, I interviewed uh, Helen and Chris, and we talked about the race, um, a lot of details, what it's like to kind of be behind the scenes as far as uh, directing the race. Um, and then I also talked to them about uh, some of their experiences too. They, uh, not necessarily biking, but um, they've done Arrowhead. They did uh, a, a race called the Frozen Otter, and they they have some real good cold weather racing experience. So I thought it would be, you know, an interesting look into um, race director's thoughts. So have a listen. Like I said, go over to the website, get more information, get registered, and get ready. So enjoy the interview. And if you have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email at info at mountainbikeradio.com. And I will also note, too, if you are new to Mountain Bike Radio, uh, just go to mountainbikeradio.com. If you're listening to this on the app or you click the link through the through Facebook or Twitter, um, just make a point of clicking on go to mountainbikeradio.com homepage and you'll see a, a tab at the top it says shows and you can scroll through that there's several different shows covering everything from nutrition to training to regular riding to uh, talk about um, just random stuff on just riding along basically anything you can think of as far as mountain bike related discussion 
usually there's the last two months there's been about a show a day um, there's a ton of content probably 400 hours worth of content um, so far and if you're wondering if you also go to the homepage and you can there's a little square that says go to the mountain bike radio store um, click on that and we have all kinds of different designs uh, t-shirt designs fat bike ones to uh, a couple of my favorites um, when we call the circle of life t-shirt it's basically um, some inspiration from justin piantic graphic designs i've been working with him we kind of go back and forth on these ideas and come up with a design that's cool and really reflects what we uh, feel and believe and really uh, want to put out there so but yeah the circle of life t-shirt tan with some brown print with a bike and basically a big circle in a tree. It's it's um, a lot of meaning behind that one. So go check that out at the store. The other one I want to make note too is if you go to teespring.com, which is T-E-E-S-P-R-I-N-G.com backslash mountain bike radio. What I did is I decided we, Justin and I came up with a new design. You can read about the inspiration on that page, but for a limited time, you go on there, you can order. There's a choice of six different colors, two that are tailored towards women. Go on there, check it out. But I wanted to do a campaign like that to just do something a little bit different. Um, it's it's kind of like a Kickstarter for t-shirts. And I just wanted to do something different, bring a little you know, shot in the arm as far as getting, the, getting mountain bike radio out there, getting the shirt out there. Um, not going to do it all the time like that, but I thought it'd be fun interactive way to to do it this time so go check it out i'll have a link in the show notes to go down below too and you can figure out what i'm talking about but that's it for now again to scobia winter ultra this year january 1st through the 3rd 2015 so you have christmas to to hang out a little bit before uh you get racing this year but it's enough of the intro enough of the uh, updates as far as mountain bike radio and buying stuff and the all the details. Enjoy the interview uh, with Helen and Chris, the directors of the Tiscobia Winter Ultra. Welcome, Chris and Helen. Hey, thanks, Ben. Yeah, hey, no man. problem. So we're going to talk about the race, the Tiscobia 150. You guys kind of... Uh, fell into race directing or directing the race a couple of years ago or a few years ago. And I want to talk about that. And then I want to talk about some of your own, uh, some of your thoughts as far as the, the bike, um, angle and how it's, how the fat bike popularity has changed over the couple last couple of years. Um, and we'll talk about the race, how it went this year. And then I want to listeners, I want to talk to these two it's so cover your ears if you don't want to hear non-mountain biking stuff but they've done some crazy stuff this winter and they were up at arrowhead um on foot so they they know what it was like to uh to go through the crazy cold uh on foot but uh so first we'll talk about the scobia and then we'll get to the uh the running part but uh so all right with that introduction guys um Let's talk about how you got, uh, how you kind of fell into the race. So take us through that. You don't just yeah. start race directing for, you know, Hey, let's do this. So how, how, how's it going? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, well, and I had actually done the race as a participant in 2010, the 150 mile distance and was signed up again in 2011. And, uh, 
a good number of our friends and kind of uh, acquaintances in the winter ultra community, both runners and bikers as well as skiers. Um, we were all getting excited to go to 2011, and about a month before the race was supposed to happen, it actually got canceled, uh, unfortunately. And so Helen and I had just sent out an email to some of the people we knew who were signed up and were trying to gauge if anybody still had interest in going and do kind of, um, I guess, a, a bandit-type run or ride um, or just kind of show up unofficially and do it. And and we had uh, actually quite a bit of interest in people still wanting to go. And so we started looking into some basic logistics, um, setting up checkpoints and getting uh, people moved around with buses and things like that. And it, it kind of just snowballed from there. And before we knew it, we had announced that we were putting the event back on as a kind of a bare bones event, but an official event. And we worked with the DNR to get that squared away and, um, our focus with only a month to go before the event was really just getting through that year and, and trying to pull something off. And then um, once that event came and went, we talked about it a little bit more and decided we actually kind of enjoyed the <laughs> the pain and misery that can be part of race directing, um, which is really offset by just having people come and enjoy it and have a good time and, and seeing people uh, succeed at either – the 35 or 75 or 150 mile distance. And so we got a lot of enjoyment out of it and decided that for the foreseeable future, we would continue directing the event. Okay. And you didn't do it just to be clear. You didn't uh, direct any races before that, right? We hadn't Um, volunteered at a number of races and Helen's done a lot of volunteer work with um, the upper Midwest trail runners organization, but we had never actually directed a race before. Okay. So either one of you, I want to get your take from the race director's perspective, you know, going into it, you know, the first time you're naive, you're like, Oh, this is, you know, this goes this way. This goes this way, whatever. First year, you don't know what you're getting into. No big deal. Second year, now you know what you're getting into. Now you know what you have to deal with, what you have to do. Um, you know, what did you learn, I guess, from that first year up until now? Are there, you know, if somebody was thinking about getting into race directing or doing that type of thing, what would you tell them? I think, you know, the first year, because we put it on like so sort of last minute and everyone was really happy and our numbers were pretty small because, you know, at the time it was a fairly small race anyway. But then, you know, some people had sort of withdrawn and didn't get back in because it was really it was down to the wire as to whether it would happen or not. So the first year, I feel like we you know, we couldn't have done much wrong because the people that came were so happy the race was on. Um, the next year, you know, we definitely learned a few things, of, you know, from just kind of the organization perspective. And the big thing, because there's three different um, race distances, as well as the three different modes of transport, the bike, runner, ski, we sort of figured out, you know, the best time to start the race so that we get the most finishers. So we, we changed around some of the logistics for the second year, knowing that we'd have like significantly more numbers. But I think our main thing the second year and also this year and in the future is just to keep it as simple as we can. You know, we really, as as much from our experience at other races and talking to other race directors, I think once you sort of start doing something, that becomes the expectation. And, you know, we we felt that like most people coming to do this race are looking for a pretty hardcore event, um, keep it fairly simple. And that obviously helps us as well. You know, so safety is number one, making sure that, you know, we have the right setup so that people will be safe. They're required to carry gear, things like that. But beyond that, I think it's, you know, reinforcing it with people that it's, you know, you're, you're coming here. You should be ready to do it. It's pretty self-sufficient, but we, you know, we help you out with checkpoints and things like that. 
And before I, I guess before we get further into it, I, I didn't really talk about what the race is, but Tuscobia 150 is uh, a, like you said, three distances, a 35, 75, and a 150 uh, in yep. northern Wisconsin, end of December. Uh, in the checkpoints, our hotel rooms, I'll let you guys talk about how you came up with that idea. But um, so if people listening, I'll, I'll have the links posted at the bottom of the page. So you can just scroll down and check it out. But um, yeah, so that's basically what we're talking about right now with race directors, Chris and Helen. Um, so yeah, talk about the logistics. Like, you know, like you said, that first year, um, you kind of didn't really matter. So then second year, was all this stuff kind of in place or did you have to come up with a lot of the stuff from the previous race director? Yeah, actually the, the general layout of the event, um, we just took as the previous race director had it. So the Tuscobia winter ultra, it's got three distances, three modes of transport. Um, but the checkpoints are the same for everybody. They just occur at different times during the prospective races. So, um, in terms of keeping it simple, the finish line is in Park Falls at the, um, it's called the Shawamigan Canoe Club. It's a little kind of bar bistro. And so everybody finishes there. And then we just change where they start. So the 150 is actually an out and back on the 75 mile Tuscobia Trail. The 75 mile race, we actually just bust the racers down to the Rice Lake Trailhead and start them there. And then they, just come in on the trail and finish at the bistro. And then the 35 mile race, we, as you might imagine, just take them down 35 miles and drop them off. Um, and so most of our logistics are around getting racers to their starts. Um, and then the checkpoints are one is in winter. It's a small town on the trail. And the other one is in Birchwood. Um, roughly the winter checkpoint is roughly 35 miles in for the 150 mile racers and the Birchwood checkpoint is roughly 62 miles in for the 150 mile racers. Um, and you can, for the 75 miles, you just flip it around the Birchwood's first and winter second. And then for the 35 mile, we actually do have a, it's a 35 mile only and it's not so much a, an aid station, but just, uh, just to check to see how they are. And that's about, I think 10 or 11 miles into the race. It's just a road crossing and we put a car there with some volunteers um, just to kind of keep an eye on them, make sure that they know what they've gotten into. Um, but then once they're through there, we pull that out. And going back to the idea of keeping it simple, that's really all it is, is we, we get people to the start, we open up some checkpoints um, and then kind of let them go. And And kind of the one thing we knew when we took it over the first year is – in addition to providing the event and, and the logistics, we kind of just wanted to create a, an atmosphere where everybody had a good time. And, and really, we got lucky in that the Schwamgen Canoe Club that hosts the finish line, the proprietor, Greg, is um, he's great. He, we kind of put him in charge of you throw the party at the end of the event, um, make sure everybody has a good time. He's got pizzas and beers and pops and sandwiches and and we really tried to focus on an event that's less about being overproduced and corporate and more of an event that everybody's getting together for a long weekend and having a tough, tough race. 150 miles is not easy. Neither is 75 miles or 35 miles for that matter, depending on your level. 
but at the end of it, it's a warm, inviting atmosphere. You can share a beer or a, a pop with a fellow racer, family, friends, things like that. And and I think that's really how we've um, maybe built the reputation of the races. It's it's a good weekend. It's fun, um, and it's um, something that people don't have to think too much about if they want to do. It's it's something they look forward to, and that's kind of our hope. Um, and it dovetails nicely into the idea of keeping things simple. The simpler we make it, the less expensive it is for us to produce the event. And in turn, we can keep the entry fees as low as possible. Um, I think if you look at our price per mile, it's it's probably <laughs> it's, it's a pretty good it's deal. Probably one of the better value races that are out there. Yeah, and I would say, and I, I raced it this year, uh, listeners, and I would say that your first, if, if anybody hasn't ridden or skied or whatever that trail you think out and back on, a, on basically a rail trail is yeah. not really that because by the time you get back and there's like there's more hills by the time you get back you forget that you the scenery so it's totally different so it's not just so if you're considering it my point is do it because don't be concerned like it's out and back because you won't remember that it's out and back yeah, yeah and, and going you know going from day to night and everything it is yeah. like that's what people say it's different and yeah it's um i mean it's it's challenging though i think you know compared to some other races you know depending on on what you're used to because there are a lot of straight sections and so it's definitely a you know it's a good mental challenge that way to stay in the game as well mm-hmm. exactly all right so let's talk about uh this year's race um the last two years or last couple of years have been kind of low snow, right? And this year it's been like the one of the worst went I think there's like a misery index and I think <laughs> they're like top on, you know, all time misery index. But so a lot of snow, uh, a lot more racers. How to go this year from, you know, ra- but let me let me clarify. Um Chris, you did you were out on a, you were out running. Um and Helen, you were kind of during the day of you were, you know, had two separate roles. So I want to hear from both of your perspectives. How did the race day and, you know, night before that go? Yeah, I think it went pretty well. It's, um, our numbers have grown. So the first year we took it over again, a month before the event, we had, I think 55 starters or so 2012, we had 116 starters. And then this year we had 141 and, well, it doesn't seem like a lot to go from 56 to 116 to 141. It's you, we definitely can feel the difference. Um, you know, three times as many people as the first year. So the kind of the pre-race organization and getting the registrations and making sure we have enough spots on buses and enough, um, food and water at checkpoints and things like that. Definitely. We noticed that difference. Um, and not that it added more stress, but it was just more time and prep went into that. So I think we were a little bit maybe concerned going into the actual weekend um, because, of course, you have to check all those people in, do all the gear check, um, you know, make sure everybody knows where they're going, knows what they're doing, things like that. So I think um, kind of the workload was definitely higher this year, but still manageable. And again, it kind of goes back into our idea of a, a relatively simple event with kind of a, a chilled out atmosphere um, and the types of people who tend to sign up for the Tuscobia Winter Ultra kind of fit that as well in that, you know, they're pretty relaxed people, pretty easygoing. Nobody's going to kick you over to get in line to check in or anything like that. So really the, the racers doing it make it um, 
that's easier for us versus kind of a high stress type of event. Um, and yeah, for me, um, so the last two years actually that we've directed the race, I actually competed in the foot division in the 150 and this year I was as well, but about 10 miles into the race, I realized that <laughs> it's not nearly as exciting the fourth time on foot as it was the first three. And I started to have that guilt, I guess, where my wife was running around for two and a half days directing a race while I'm out on the trail having fun. So I, I, uh, I managed to stick it out to 62 miles, but then I dropped there and um, went back to the finish line and, and saw racers in and did some shuttling of people around who were dropping and, and just kind of doing race directing duties like I should have been doing. And, and I actually, to be honest, enjoyed that uh, immensely. And it was a lot more fun to be a team actually both directing the race than one of us directing and one of us out there having a good time on the trail racing it. So it was a little bit different year for me in, in that sense and that I actually had to work this weekend for it. So, <laughs> Although he did spend a few hours drinking beer at the finish line, welcoming racers. So, yeah. You know. Hey, that's part of it. Though. <laughs> it yeah. is. It is. It was important that there was one of the race director teams doing that. We yeah. might swap that role next year. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and I can say from personal experience, I am that guy on, uh, cause me and a buddy put on the frozen 40, like we were talking about before the show and I'm the guy with a beer in a hand, like <laughs> talking to everybody and like, you know, like, oh crap, I have to go do this. Like, you know, so yeah. I'm, I'm with you, Chris. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was but, great. But, you know, if, if you get five, the thing is, right, if you get five people that mention it to some other people, like, hey, one of the race directors met us, he had a beer in hand, like, how cool is that? <laughs> yeah. You know? No, so it's, and that is the kind of atmosphere where people, everyone kind of, people know people and people have a chance, you know, and obviously we have new people coming each year. But it's, I mean, we also want to keep it relatively small just because I think we like, we like that we know a lot of the people and it's, you know, obviously not everyone can do it year after year, which then allows for like newer people to sign up in that. But, you know, that's one of the things that I was glad Chris got to see this year, like actually to meet a lot of the people, because the last two years, you know, especially when he's doing the 150, which is the longest race on foot, he really misses like people have come and gone by the time he's back. So, you know, I, I talk about like meeting different people and it's um, that's, you know, that's the part of it I love over the weekend. Like I even now that I've started to do winter races myself, I would never really want to do this because I, I just enjoy the the whole sort of being, you know, seeing where people are at on the trail, talking to them at the checkpoints and, you know, seeing how people are doing. Isn't it crazy by the end of the weekend, you're just, your voice, like you just don't want to talk and you're just like, oh man, I'm done. You just like you, you end up talking to people all day and all, you know, like it's, it's just a ton. It's, it's a busy weekend. <laughs> so, all right. So I want to get your take on, you guys have seen it, you know, the last couple of years, fat bikes have I want to hit the fat bike angle, the the running and stuff. We can, uh, we'll get to you guys, but for this show purpose. Um, so you guys have seen it the last couple of years blown up, uh, the race numbers, like you said, you want to keep it small, but can you talk about how it's changed from what you just from your perspective of being a small race, Northern Wisconsin, um, what you've seen with fat bikes in the last couple of years? Oh, sorry. Um, are you still there? Sorry. Yeah, we are. Sorry. Are, okay. Is the connection no, okay fine. with you? It sort of went a little bit. Oh, yeah, it's fine. Okay, good. And I can, and if there's any further, just let me know. I can edit it. Okay, so, so sounds probably. good. Yeah. Um, All right. So, so you were yeah, asking about it growing, the race growing over the few years. Yeah, just uh, fat bike perspective. Um, uh, how have you seen, you know, the last couple of years become more popular and, you know, you're still a small race. You want to keep it small. 
can you just talk about what you've seen as far as the, the increase in popularity of fat bikes from your perspective? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, I guess, explosion, I would, I'd call it a fat bikes over the last five years is, has been insane. Um, like you said, you know, back in the day you had one or two options and now there's probably, I don't know, 15 fat bike manufacturers that you could look up on a Google search and find a pretty sweet ride. Um, and the materials of course are making their way through a lot of carbon or a lot more carbon this year. That's still kind of, you know, a specific few people who can dish out that kind of money for that kind of bike. But (laughs) I mean, it's there. I mean, whereas five years ago you couldn't even get a carbon bike if you wanted to. So it's, it's been amazing. And I think it's been great for winter sports in general. I think the fat bikes are sort of kind of leading the Renaissance back into the winter ultras and the, the long distance, um, types of events. So it's been great. Um, you know, Helen and I, our background is probably more in the running side at this point, but definitely fat bikes are leading the way for the winter ultra, um, kind of revolution. Um, in, in terms of numbers for our event specifically, I think Helen's got some of the growth numbers. Yeah, we've gone from like, so when we took it over in 2011, we had 21 bikers that year and only one in the shorter distance. So in general, the folks biking that were, were a bit more experienced, um, you know, they were willing to try the 75 or 150. Then in 2012, that more than doubled. So we had over 50 bikers and then this year, 60 bikers. And we've really seen kind of a spread um, across the distances but like this year we had 25 bikers in the 35 mile which just goes to show like you know how many people are new to this and getting into it and trying to start off with a shorter distance and then mm-hmm. you know a lot of between 2012 and 2013 we saw a bunch of who the people who had done the shorter distance in 2012 then step up you know either go from 35 to 75 or from 75 to 150 this year so that you know that's really cool to see that you know we're, we're sort of giving them a race that they can get into it and try it and then um just go longer and farther and you know talk to other people at the race and and get to know sort of what it's like yeah and you know you have a unique race there's only a few you know like arrowhead does the bike runs you know ski and um can you talk have you guys experienced much in the way of um i guess animosity between skiers and runners and fat bikes or does it really matter from from your race perspective and you know what are the different groups talking I mean, you have a good perspective on both all these different groups what you know because there's been some press and there's been some arguments and stuff but what do you guys see from your perspective as the overall uh feeling i guess between the groups yeah it's i guess my overall feeling is that it's it's almost the same community and they just are you know, on a different mode of transport i think it especially when you talk about the 150 mile distance and and even the 75 mile distance, first and foremost, you're talking about a unique type of individual who's willing to do that in the winter. And then maybe you're talking about a skier or a runner or a biker, but I think there's a common genetic deformation somewhere where somebody (laughs) thinks it's a good idea to go do this. Um, And so from that perspective, I think there's a common bond. Um, And then, you know, to be realistic, uh, a lot of people will do more than one mode. Um, you know, there are skiers who bike and runners who bike and bikers who ski. And you'll see at our event as well as the Arrowhead event and even the Iditarod event, there are people who do multiple disciplines from year to year. Um, you know, Jason Buffington biked Iditarod 
and Arrowhead last year, and he did Tuscovia and I did a ride on foot this year um, is just one example that I can think of off the top of my head. So you, you see, I guess, cross discipline within the events. Um, and in terms of, you know, competition, sure, there's bikers who make fun of runners for being silly. Why would you ever want to walk that far? Um, and of course, the runner's retort is, well, why would I want it so easy? Why would I want to ride a bike? <laughs> yeah. And then I think the skiers somehow stay above the fray because they're somewhere in the middle. Um, but it's it's all in good fun. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's more the type of people who do these types of event find commonality in that rather than, you know, poo-pooing each other for how they're getting it done. Yeah. And, you know, I kept with the increased popularity of fat bikes this year, you know, there's a lot of debate about ski trails and all that kind of stuff. And, like there's a lot of arguing and bickering back and forth, like stay off the trails. No, we have the right. It's, you know, whatever. But I contend that like skiers and fat bike people are kind of the same because in the world of skiing, right? It's like, well, what kind of wax should I use? What's the condition like? What's the snow like? What's the temperature? You know, what kind of, what kind of uh push am I going to get? What kind of grip? All this stuff, right? So in the fat bike discussion is like, well, what air pressure should I run? What's the condition like? What kind of tire should I run? It's like they're the same thing. Like they don't realize like they're talking the same language. They just don't realize it because they haven't talked to each other yet about it. Yeah, absolutely. So. And ultimately, you know, in terms of um, you know, lobbying for access to public lands or private lands or places to to practice their crafts, bikers and skiers probably are a much stronger group together than, you know, fighting the good fight on their own. So, mm -hmm. you know, hopefully that's the, the overriding thought process, um, you know, and runners too, to some extent, sure. We, we don't necessarily need a groomed trail, but you know, you we, guys are the oddballs. <laughs> yeah. But you know, we'd much rather be out somewhere where there's something else going on as well. So there's no reason why, it can't be just, you know, winter silent sports enthusiasts together working to find places to to do these things. So I, I guess we've been lucky at our event. Um, and, and I think in my experience at Arrowhead, too, that, you know, everybody gets along and everybody's, you know, just happy to be there. So um, I think it's good. Cool. So I want to ask you before we go on to talking about what what you guys have going on personally, what you've done this winter. Um, were there any stories this year? It can be anything, not, it can be the ski runner bike, but any stories in this year's race that kind of was like, you know, that, that will live on like, Holy crap. Do you, you know, do you remember back when? <laughs> well, there's one that I'll definitely tell at the pre-race meeting next year. Um, because we had a guy on foot, um, he ended up finishing, he was in the top few, he was in the 75 mile. And, you know, one of the things we sort of joke about at this race, well, and probably at any winter race, really, on a trail like this, where you're out in the woods, you don't have a marker every, you know, 10 steps. I mean, we barely mark this trail because we don't really need to. It's the Tuscobia Trail the whole way, and it's already marked with actually well, milepost signs. <laughs> unless you're me. <laughs> unless you're you. That's another we'll story we'll tell. <laughs> but, but we, um, you know, we have joked about people, um, you know, once they, if you, you know, move off the trail to lie down to rest, to do anything, basically, because there, there could be snowmobilers on the trails. So you have to really be careful. And we say to people, if you, you know, leave your your poles down make sure you mark you know which direction you are going um oh, so no. we we did have a guy at the finish who told us about um he actually was he was pulling his sled and i guess he 
was falling asleep probably and sort of just stumbled and he fell over and it was I think on one of the little you know where they've taken the bridges out of the rail trail mm-hmm. and there that's the few places where there are little hills and mm-hmm. he ended up on the ground got up kept going and about half an hour later he met a guy going the opposite direction and oh, he realized no. and, and it was funny because the two guys were both just you know debating who had gone wrong and i mean the, you know <laughs> oh, one of the guys no. had never turned around but they were both a little tired they were like you know 24 hours out there at this point so they realized anyway um that uh yeah jeff had had gotten up and gone the wrong way so <laughs> that was quite a story <laughs> oh wow and i i there was one other two that uh was it the winner the second place the woman who did the 150 run wasn't it she sue yeah didn't she she finished second or something she did she was second overall this year and she she is one of the few people who did not sleep at all yeah that was kind of her strategy going into the race it was her first time doing i mean she's she's done a lot of 100 milers you know um trail 100 milers so a lot of long distance races but nothing you know for this length of time and she's from she's from northern manitoba so she's well used to the snow and the conditions but um, yeah, she had a unique strategy to, you know, get in and out of the checkpoints pretty quickly and just spend the time on the trail. And she's a real fast walker. So she was, you know, trying to just maintain her, her a good, a good, strong pace the whole way. And yeah, she, she had a great finish. She and was- people should, you know, since there's a mountain biking community that's listening, they should realize that these people aren't just running. They're running, like you said, pulling a sled with their gear. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah. So take take that for what it's worth yeah <laughs> next time riders next time you are listeners next time you're out for doing a hundred or 150 mile ride or whatever just think about how when you complain how hard it is just think about these people doing it pulling sleds That's right. <laughs> so. all right so is there anything else you guys wanted to mention about this year's race uh actually i wanted to ask for next year you're we talked beforehand you have some plans in the works for next year do you have any idea? Is it going to be the same date? Uh, just give us some updates on what you, I guess what you have for next year so far. Yeah, absolutely. So we are planning on having the event next year. Um, the dates will be somewhat similar around the Christmas, New Year holiday, um, but we do not have a final date worked out yet. We're working with the state of Wisconsin and the DNR and hope to have some confirmation on that here in the next few weeks. But we definitely will be moving forward. Um the the race will be capped again uh, in terms of how many people can enter. So the 35-mile and the 75-mile race will be capped at, I believe, 50 and 60 racers each. The 150-mile will remain uncapped. Um, we want to let as many people into that event as we can. We hope to, again, be offering a free entry into the Iditarod Trail Invitational for the following year which um, is about a $1,200 value, but probably more importantly for, for those that know, it's, uh, it's an invitational. So our entry is actually guaranteed, um, assuming you've got some experience, which if you win the 150 mile, you will. So, um, And if your name's not Jason. Yeah, yeah, if your name's <laughs> not Jason Puffington, who has one or two entries. Um, and yeah, and we, uh, we got some great sponsors this year, kind of, both for, or I guess, for all run, bike, and ski, and we hope to bring them back. Um, we've seen our raffle increase. Um, I think you have a probably a better chance of winning a raffle item than finishing, um, which is uh, kind of a cool thing um, for people who do come. So you, hopefully you can walk away with something. So 
we'll continue to build that up. And yeah, any questions, people can just check out the website at um, at our um, website, which is discovia.wordpress.com. All right, cool. And I'll link that in the show notes. I'll link whatever uh, else we kind of talked about so that way people can check it out. Um, all right. So now let's get to the so the not the the cycling people that are listening. You don't want to hear about ultra running winter. You can uh, close your ears, but so I want to talk about what you guys have done the rest of this winter because it's crazy stuff. Um, so let's uh, let's start out. I I don't know beyond the frozen otter and Arrowhead what else you guys might have done. I just know you did those two events. Talk about them. Talk about the frozen otter because the. The story that, that I remember from a few years ago was the winner lost like a couple tips of his fingers because he had frostbite and just talk about what that race is and yeah how you how you guys did yeah so the frozen otter is a it's in uh, Wisconsin in the Kettle Moraine Forest um, they call it the northern unit I guess and it's the the believe is it the Ice Age Trail yep mm-hmm. it's all on the Ice Age Trail and it's a little bit different than most other winter races that are out there, which of course typically are occurring on some kind of snowmobile or some kind of groomed surface. Um, whereas the frozen otter is it's on single track in the middle of the woods. So it's not groomed. There may have been traffic, but it definitely is more like, um, post holing through the snow if it's snowed recently. Um, and it was a hundred kilometers, um, well-run event. Again, it's, it's a smaller type of event. Um, um, well, well stocked in terms of aid stations and support and, uh, just a great run event. I think they've been doing it for seven or eight years. And, um, I, I'm notorious for rather than training, um, kind of <laughs> training by racing. So I thought it was a good idea that Helen and I go do that about eight days before Arrowhead. And she, uh, I talked her into it somehow. So she came with and, <laughs> So we, um, I actually drove back to the Midwest and Helen flew. Um, we did that event, um, spent some time with my family in Wisconsin and then headed up to Arrowhead and, um, did the Arrowhead race uh, eight days later. Hmm. So Helen, how'd it go for you? <laughs> it was, you know, this was my, like last year was the first time I'd ever done a winter race. So we, we went into Iowa and did the, um, the triple D and then we both did active Epic as well last year. But other than, you know, getting to know all the people through Tuscobia and Chris having done Arrowhead, I, you know, was really, um, not sure quite what to expect for, for myself and having signed up for Arrowhead back in the fall, I did agree that I should probably get some training in. So, <laughs> so you know, when we were back in Wisconsin for Tuscobia, I got to do like a couple of long runs myself, pull on the sled. So, you know, Frozen Otter was interesting because it was, it was more like training for the gear and the clothing rather than like the sled aspect because it was, as Chris said, on single track. So we weren't like pulling our sleds. But, um, you know, because we were, you know, it was pretty cold there and we were able to sort of figure out like what sort of like shoes and socks and just different like yeah, clothing, you know, decisions. So it was definitely helpful for that. Um, it was, I found Frozen Adder pretty tough, like physically. And I was, but I was really happy that I recovered like quickly. Like it just, you know, because you're on single track, you're post-holing, you're like, my hip flexors were, were just killing me for a day or so after. But then, you know, I, I came back from that and, and it was, um, we both actually, I think felt pretty fresh going into Arrowhead. Um, and, and what was you, the distance on the Frozen Adder? Frozen Adder was 64 miles. Okay. How long did it take you guys? So it was like 21 hours, I think. Yeah, we were, yeah. 21 or 22. 20, yeah, yeah, just about And that. 
And I wouldn't say we raced it too hard, but it is still a lot of distance to cover and um, try to get it done fairly quickly. You don't want to spend more time out there than you need to. Yeah, yeah. But I just wanted to give people an idea of 21 hours and you guys are like, yeah, a couple days and I felt better. (laughs) You know, like this is who we're dealing with here, you know. Um, All right. So that went pretty well. You came out. You were feeling good. um, Got recovered. And you headed up to northern Minnesota, International Falls, middle of now what is deemed a polar vortex. <laughs> yep. And it's famous. I mean, the the stories, it was like 25 below. Talk about what it's like to race the Arrowhead on foot in that type of temperature. You know, was it what you – had you trained for being in that cold temperature or is it just something you knew you could be ready for that? Talk about it. Yeah, it's tough. Um I'm lucky in that I have done Arrowhead two other times on foot as well. And and actually, the first year I did it, um, I was out for two nights, and both nights were it got down to around minus 40. So I knew that I could survive, but I also knew that if it would have been one degree colder, I probably would have frozen to death mid-stride. And so to prepare for this year, we knew it was going to be cold again. And, and, And in some ways, this year it was... The cold was more difficult because it was very cold for the entire time versus a couple of years ago. It might have been colder at night, but it warmed up during the day. So you had a little bit of reprieve from that. Um, but dealing with the cold, it just um, it's kind of like a lot of other aspects of racing, regardless of if you're on foot or skis or a bike. It's your preparation um, and your gear choices. So you make sure you have what you need to handle the conditions and then while you're in the race, uh, constantly taking evaluations and self-checks. So, you know, are my feet dry? If if they're dry, are they cold? Um, and taking care of that because frostbite was pretty bad this year and a lot of people got pulled for frostbite. Um, so keep an eye on your feet, keep an eye on your hands. Um, little things like if you wear gloves or mittens, make sure you always wear a liner so your bare skin's never exposed. Um, a, a lot, number of people we knew hadn't thought about that and ended up getting frostbite and having to drop from the race. And then of course your face, your nose and your ears, um, you know, the trick always is, and bikers can understand this as well is how do you protect your, your nose and your face, um, while racing, because sooner or later you're going to have a big chunk of ice somewhere where it's going to be uncomfortable. And, you know, how do you figure out what kind of mask to wear or kind of neck system, things like that. So really, a lot of prep work went into, you know, different options for what might work and what might not. And then of course, having backups to those pieces of gear and having backups to those backups. So in that sense, I think if you're prepared and and you keep your head in the game, the cold is, can be easier to deal with than warmer temps where the snow might be bad or, you know, it could be raining or things like that. Um, so I think, for us, we we were well prepared and had a good time out there. I know for me personally, of the six long winter races that I've done, it was the most fun I've had. So as strange as that might sound, um, and I guess I'll let Helen kind of add her input as well. <laughs> yeah, well, Helen, yeah. how to go? You haven't done this before, right? No, okay. I had gone up to Arrowhead like the first year Chris did it in 2011. So you know, I had like a sense of how remote it was, what the trail was like, but. Um, 
I had the chance at like after the Tuscobia race this year and it was pretty cold. My tra- one of the training runs I did overnight, I went out like after dark and it was probably minus 10 or 13. So, you know, it was still like significantly warmer than what we had at Arrowhead, but it gave me a good chance to like feel confident in just, you know, when I was by myself and just to kind of feel confident knowing what I was doing and how, you know, when I stopped, how long it took me to get really cold if I stopped, you know, to, to get food or to change something. So I felt like, you know, we had made, you know, we had the right gear with us and we definitely, I mean, we didn't go light, you know, my, my sled was, you know, if I was to do it again, I probably would try to reduce it, but it was the right choice for this year, you know, given the conditions to, to bring more versus less. Um, and yeah, I, I definitely, the, the fact that it was so cold, the trail was so hard that was, you know, again, I think mentally that made it a much easier race for me versus going through like softer snow. Um, my feet never, I, I wore like regular trail running shoes or Gore-Tex shoes, but um, my feet never got cold. So I was like just so thrilled with that and it never, I never really felt like super uncomfortable. I mean, we, you know, we definitely, you go along for a few hours and you, you're moving a little faster or the sun's out. And so you, you know, take off a layer, put back on a layer. I mean, there's a lot of that, you know, it's amazing the time spent just sort of making those changes. Um, but you have to do it. And I think, you know, we were both definitely sort of learning from Chris and hearing about his experiences we were like really good at sort of making those choices rather than leaving it you know an hour or two and you know then you know it could be irreversible if you've sort of ignored like some you know being too old or getting sweaty yeah so that's all you were wearing. what what can you just do a quick rundown what you were exactly wearing just so people get an idea like for your feet that's all like talk about that it's, yeah i think it's, it's a little <laughs> no and and i think that's one area um Compared to to biking, you know, of course, on a bike, it's tough because not only are you dealing with the conditions of the temperature and the wind, but then you're riding into it at 10 miles an hour. So um, I think that's one area where where the runners or the people on foot get a little bit of a break. Um, I know for both of us, we wore kind of like a liner sock with a wool sock over it and then um, trail running shoes that are waterproof and then just a small gaiter that is... Um, not waterproof, um, to allow the moisture to get out. Mm -hmm. Um, so for the feet, really, that's all we do. And then just keep track. Like if, you know, Gore-Tex shoes, your feet are going to get sweaty, even if it's cold. So if they get sweaty, get dry socks on as soon as you can and and really try to keep them dry and and happy. Cause again, over that distance and over that time, even if they're not getting frozen, if they're sweaty, they're going to get blistered and all raisiny and, and things like that. And then for the rest of the clothes, it, I think we both wore like some long johns, um, like Merino. I wore a synthetic pair, actually, and then um, a Gore-Tex pant mm-hmm. to cut the wind, um, zips on the sides to let heat out if not needed. And then up top, I, we just kind of, we varied, but basically the same idea as you would on a bike is layers. So, you know, get a base layer that moves moisture out, get a mid layer that works well, and then top layers that are appropriate for the conditions. Um, probably wore a lot more down this year than I did last year when it was 30 degrees. Um, and and um, then hats and gloves, kind of constantly changing those as they get cold or wet. And um, really just having a lot of interchangeable pieces to that system to, to stay on top of things. Hmm. Oh, it's, it just seems like there's a lot with the running. It's a lot less involved as far as, you know, compared to the bike, it's a bike, like you said, it's just, there's so much wind and all the stuff that goes into it. Um, so I'm interested in the, the couple perspective, 
Right. So you go out there, you're doing this race, not together, but I saw, cause I was following it and I was, you know, I check up, see what's going on. And, um, I noticed there was a couple times, it seemed like later on, maybe that one of, I can't remember who it was, but one of you kind of held back at a checkpoint or whatever it was. Can you talk about the dynamic of doing it as a couple compared to doing it as a solo? Is there any, yeah, yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, we, um, we went into it with, um, I guess, uh, buy-in from both of us, agreement from both of us that we were not going to do the race together. Um, and I think just our experience for both of us knowing that it's almost impossible to do a race, any race of distance together, step for step with anyone. Um, and especially at something like Arrowhead where, you know, one person might stop to go to the bathroom or eat or change socks and the other person, you know, probably doesn't have to do that at the exact same time. So I think from a strategy standpoint, it's almost impossible to do a race like this with somebody every step of the way. Um, that being said, um, it kind of worked out. We hooked up at a few different places. Um, and then when we were in the home stretch, I think with, you know, out of the last checkpoint, um, I had actually stopped and needed to change my socks there and Helen went ahead. Um, and then she actually bivvied not too far from the checkpoint. And then I ended up bivvying later on, um, leapfrogging ahead of her. And then when we both were done bivvying and had maybe 20 miles to go and the sun was coming up, we were together. So at that point we, you know, we kind of knew we had it in the bag and could smell the barn. So we stayed together for that. And I think we actually did a pretty good job of pushing each other. And, um, it was, it was great from my perspective to be able to finish the race with Alan. Um, so it was neat in that aspect, but, um, going into it, we had no intention of spending any time on the trail together really. Okay. So Helen, at any point in that, at the, you know, like he said, you were pushing, pushing each other, you know, I know what it's like to have a wife who, you know, at some points like, just leave me alone. Let, let me, you know, <laughs> was there any point like that where, you know, later on that you were like that, like those last 20 miles, like he's like, all right, come on, let's go. And you're like, dude, just leave me alone. I, I got my plan. I want to do this. Just go or stay behind or whatever. No, I, I, not really at all, to be okay. honest, because, you know, we like I was really one of the you know most enjoyable parts of the whole thing for me was just like it was a it was a great, like real peaceful experience, just a whole race and, you know, really focusing on like how you're doing yourself. And I mean, it was really cool knowing that Chris was out there on the trail, knowing he was ahead of me, you know, I burst two checkpoints at like a quarter of the way through and halfway through I came into the checkpoints and he was still there. And but, you know, again, you're you're really focused on like you know, sort of like just preparing for yourself to get out again and get some rest, get some food. And because we had, we had a plan that way, like that was, was the way we, we did it. But at the same time, when I left halfway, you know, I knew that he had only left a half an hour ahead of me. So it was, you know, it was kind of fun thinking. I didn't, I certainly didn't sort of like say, oh, I'm going to like, you know, make sure I catch up to him. But at the same time I thought, oh, well maybe I'll catch up to him. And that, that was nice to, to think about. But, um, yeah. And then, you know, towards the end of the race, we, we just kind of knew we were going to be tired at different times. So again, you know, not to sort of like, you know, force someone to stop when they didn't need to, we just slept, you know, kind of bivied separately. But, um, you know, there again, I sort of knew that like there was probably, if we had slept for a similar amount of time, there was probably a good chance I would catch up to him again once I had gotten up. So, um, yeah, that was fun. Like seeing him ahead and knowing that I would, I would catch up with him, but no, we, I think like towards the end of the race, we both wanted to be done. So <laughs> we were both, yeah. I mean, because Chris had done before, I was like, 
there was a few times when I was like looking for landmarks and I was like, do you recognize this place? Is this, are, we, are we nearly there? <laughs> but, um, you know, so it was, but I think at that stage as well, we were just sort of, you know, enjoying like the fact that we were both going to make it. And it was, you know, it's, it's, you know, you want to be done, but you're also like almost don't want it to be over at times. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there were stories about the wolves out on the course um, from, a from, I guess from being on the bike perspective, I, I'm less, you know, cause I live where there's mountain lions. So like from my mind, like if I was out running, it seems it's probably the same risk, but running is a lot slower. It seems like if you're on a bike, you can like get around and you're not gonna be chased by these animals. Right. So from somebody on the bike, where, did you see anything or is it, does that even enter in your mind? Or are you just thinking, Oh, there's no big deal. Like I'm out here, it's the middle of the night, it's 25 below. I'm just running, walking. Is there, does that even enter your mind? Cause I know some people watching from the outside are thinking like, holy crap, these guys are out with the wolves. Yeah. It's, um, I guess before the race or leading into the race and, you know, for a good chunk of the race in the beginning, logically there's, there's nothing to worry about from wolves. Has, has anybody ever heard of a wolf no. attacking a human? No, of course not. Um, on a side note, there was a mountain lion around Arrowhead last year. Um, so last year when I did it, that was on my mind because um, living we live in California now, and obviously we deal with mountain lions out here too. So, um, but from a wolf perspective, no. Now I will say, once you're delirious, sleep deprived. <laughs> yeah, that's um, what, yeah. you know it's the middle of the night. Uh, I had a case last year um, where it had just snowed like a dusting. And I could see the wolf prints on the trail in front of me. And, you know, then your mind starts to play games on you a little bit. But, you know, it's not any worse than the boogeyman in the dark in the middle of the night when you're delirious and hallucinating. So, you know, logically speaking, there's nothing to worry about from the wolves, um, in my opinion. Um, And it's kind of cool, actually, to... I know there were a few racers out there this year, I think actually bikers who came um, came across a pack of wolves on the trail and you know, in my opinion, it's a really cool thing to see kind of nature like that. Mm-hmm. I, w- I would, um, I, in, in retrospect, you know, I thought it was cool just seeing the wolf track. So we, at one point we saw like a, probably like an adult and a, and a younger wolf, the tracks, um, cause they were like one really large and one smaller. And it was really cool. We were going along for probably 20 minutes and they were along the side of the trail, the tracks the whole way. But I will say I was with Chris at that time. So I think I felt like, oh, yeah, I'd love to actually see these wolves. But I know if I was by myself, I would have been like, no, thank you. Gotcha. So one last question. I, I just want to hit on the food thing. You you know, you mentioned you just stop, take stuff out and eat it. Um, but what do you take? So you're carrying all your gear in this sled, right? Yep. It's 20 below. Like, what are you taking out to eat? You know, like for this ex- amount of time because what was the total time it took you we were out there 51 and a half hours all right so 51 and a half hours not counting checkpoints what do you eat that entire time when it's this cold do you both eat kind of the same thing you uh, both, or do you have completely different ways of approaching we kind of had like some of the same food like there was some of the you know more regular like you know simple sugar type of you know both gels and then some um Chomps. Of the like chomp type and pro yeah, bar, but you can't those. eat it the whole time. Do you? No, no, and not okay. at all. Like so, I think okay. like they were That's sort like of the basics the to keep. Yeah, okay. exactly. And then I went through several bags of chocolate covered pretzels. They <laughs> are like, I mean, they're like I could eat chocolate all day, and they're salty, and you know, you don't feel guilty eating those for like a day and a half when you're doing that kind of activity. 
Yeah. I tend to Chris. eat more real food as much as I can. <laughs> um, although that changes from race to race and year to year as well. But I actually carry um, some gels and chomps and things like that for when I just kind of need that pick me up. But then I also actually use Infinite Nutrition quite a bit, um, which probably a lot of bikers are familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's nice because it's customizable. So for me, I'm a bigger guy. I need more calories. I can make a, a pretty dense um, drink out of that, and it tends to to not freeze quite as quickly as just plain water. Um, but then I'll supplement with coffee, Coke. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll carry beef jerky. I'll carry... Um, we had dried the dried mango we took this yeah. year was pretty good because you know that sort of stuff doesn't freeze when it's so dehydrated already yeah dried that fruit that was a nice um, candy bars um, and then at checkpoints or things like that anything that's real food yeah. I'll, I'll eat as much as that as I can um, it was like soup and chili at like the first and second checkpoint and like to, you know cheese grilled cheese at the halfway checkpoint so that's a really you know it's a good way to to get like that regular food and sort of swap out all the sugar yeah for sure no it's i just want to give people an idea you know cyclists that are listening to this an idea of what it's like from the running perspective so it's kind of a lot of the same you know, in this kind of distance, it's kind of a lot of the same idea. It, it is. I mean, I think the strategy is the same. Like you, you just have to be like conscious of, of, of your body at the whole, the whole time. You know, how are you doing? Can you feel your toes? Can you feel your fingers? Are you, you know, falling asleep on the trail? Would you better off pulling off and Vivian? Like, I think that, you know, the thought process is, is pretty similar. Obviously we're out there for longer. So, you know, sometimes if things start to go wrong, they maybe you know have more of an impact. But at the same time, you know, on the bike, you're you're moving into the wind faster. You're so there are like other considerations that definitely tough, no matter how you're doing it. Well, and I know too that uh, <laughs> it might sound crazy for us to pull a sled on on a snow covered trail, but uh, pushing a broken down bike loaded up with fifty <laughs> pounds of gear doesn't sound like a picnic either. <laughs> no, yeah, I would definitely take the sled over the bike, <laughs> pushing pushing the bike. Yeah. But, Cool. So one last, actually one last question. I want to get your thought as far as, was it what you guys, you know, your goal going into it, did it, did you kind of have the same goal as far as, I mean, separate, but as far as the, like, did it change with the temperature, you know, the drop, the, the forecast a week out, or did you have the same plan regardless? And did it kind of work out the way you planned or was it way off of what you had hoped? Um, I think for me, my goal with Arrowhead has always been to finish. Um, I've done it three times now. The first year was my first year doing it. And, you know, like I said, it was 40 below both nights. And so, and especially because it was my first year, it was just to finish. And then the second year I did, which was last year, um, it snowed 10 inches, 12 hours into the race. And, and so any goals I may have had going into that race immediately get tossed out the window. And I mean, you might say you want to do 15 minute miles for 135 miles, but when it's got 10 inches of wet snow on the ground, you just can't do it. So I think my experience has taught me that if I'm I kind of have to have an open mind with something like Arrowhead. You just never know what the conditions are going to be. So I know for me personally, my goal has always been just to finish. So time only matters if I'm pushing the cutoffs. Um, But then being conscious of the fact that you can see snow rolling in and you might have to make up some time and and adjust kind of mid-race. But um, 
I think for me personally, going into the race um, and then coming out of it when we did and healthy and happy that uh, it was very successful and um, kind of exceeded any expectations I had for the race this year. Gotcha. Yeah, I think like obviously my first time doing something of this distance yeah. as yeah. also, you know, to finish. And and I really, you know, not, I mean, it's not everyone the first time it ever had finishes, obviously. So I wasn't like, it wasn't sort of, I certainly wasn't assuming I was going to finish. So I was definitely conscious in like the first half of the race to make sure I was being very like, you know, just knowing how my feet were doing, especially, you know, things like blisters. I feared like I probably had the right gear to handle the cold. So my biggest worry was just physically if like, you know, my, my body would break down or if I would get blisters. So it was kind of continually being conscious of that. And, you know, pulling a sled, I had, you know, the longest I pulled a sled for before was a couple of like five hours. So I was, you know, also like adjusting my sled when I needed to with my harness. It has a different, a few different options for my harness. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a lot of that in the first half. And then I think the second half, it was like, okay, do I, you know, do I sleep or do I not sleep? And at that stage, I, you know, I actually wanted the experience of Vivian. So, you know, maybe I could have, you know, finished an hour quicker if I hadn't Vivi, but I really sort of wanted the complete yeah. experience. So I figure I, you know, just, just getting through it and, um, finishing and then, you know, who knows next year, maybe trying to be more, more, more focused on time, but I don't know. I don't think you can do that. Arrowhead. I mean, it's such a great experience. Like, you know, just living through a race like that, that I think it's, it's gotta be a bit more than time. So there's next year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I swore this was like a once do it so that I know what it's like so that, you know, we can direct to SCOBY and I can in good faith say, I know what you people are going through. Um, but of course, you know, already there's next year. <laughs> Is there any plans to go North like Alaska? <laughs> yeah. I, I, the answer is yes. Um, okay. For both of you? Yeah. I, Helen's you know. going to get talked into it. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I definitely, I, I think it's, okay. again, just the whole, like, you know, the, 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 the planning that goes into something like that, like the strategy, thinking through it. I mean, I think we both love that aspect of this, you know, and, and just seeing, can you, like, figure out how to get yourself through that much, like, time out on the trail in, in the, you know, in the conditions at the mercy of, of the weather, I think, like, that challenge definitely excites both of us. Okay. Yeah. It's, you know, and, and obviously ITI is kind of the pinnacle of the winter ultra experience. Um, and definitely I know I want to do it, but I'm kind of waiting for that hundred percent passion and commitment. It's not something you can kind of just say, Oh, you want to go do it and you go do it. You, and so I'm kind of waiting for that muse to strike me, I guess, where I'm hundred okay. percent geared up and ready for it. Yeah, I think that's important. I think that's missing in a lot of things because now, like from a bike perspective, right, there's all these big events, you know, 100 milers up to like three-day type of things. Like people say, oh, I want to check that off my bucket list. I want to do this. I want to check it off. It's like it's actually not something you just check off. No. Either you live it or you don't. Exactly, yeah. And especially in the winter, that's, I mean, that's where you start running into frostbite and losing toes or, you know, worse. So it's, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. You get, you have to live it. You have to really want it. You can't manufacture it when you're out there. No. And that's, that's what the good thing about endurance is either running or biking or skiing like your dad. I'll, I'll have your dad on talk about skiing 150 miles, but that's a whole separate show. But, um, um, but I think that's the theme overall and endurance is you can't you don't fit you can't fake it 
Right. And over the long term, like you've been doing several times, like it's just something that, like I said, you live and not just make up. So cool. Thank you guys. I, I really appreciate your insight on both the, the biking, the race directing, the, the running, the, the winter ultras. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to have somebody that has perspective on all of those areas. So yeah, that. it's, you know, it's, it's been great getting like with both of us having a background in running. I mean, Chris more like definitely more familiar with the biking from his mountain biking, but it's been, it's been really fun sort of like getting more into the, the fat bikes and a lot of our running friends have converted over for winter. So you never know if we make it back to, to live full time in the Midwest, we can't really justify a fat bike in California, but back in the Midwest, we could probably figure it out. <laughs> right. Exactly. All right. Cool. Thank you, too. Thanks, man. Um, yeah, no problem. And thank you, everyone. That, that'll that do it for this episode. So stay tuned uh, till we do it again. Thank you very much.